David then ignored the warning signs. In verse 4, David sent some messengers to get her. She came to him. He had sexual relations with her. And now at that time, she was cleansing herself of her monthly menstrual cycle. And then she returned to her home. The woman conceived and then sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. That's the only time she does action. This is not a love affair. Because if it was a love affair, she would come to David and they would be with each other. And then they would be with each other. And they would be with each other. And they would be with each other. Because her husband's gone for a long time. But it says he sent for her, took her, and she went home. The next time they talk with each other, she's pregnant. Now, it's going to be four or five weeks before you've missed your next period. That's the first hint that you're pregnant. And then even then, there's no guarantee because it just could be an abnormal cycle, time of the year, whatever. Usually, it's not until around six, seven weeks, really seven weeks that you're kind of like, okay, I think this is definitely something yet. And then you're going to want to be sure, if you're going to tell a king that some huge consequences are coming, you don't want to have a false warning there. So we're talking about at least seven weeks later is probably when she's telling him. There's been no interaction in that entire time. This is not a romance. This is not an affair. This is rape. And that's what the Bible has been communicating. And you're like, yeah, but she came to him and she slept with him. Like, why did she go to him if she didn't want to be with him? It was wrong. Because in the ancient world, the king gets what he wants. And when you say no, that's death. I mean, you guys know, I mean, the Esther story has been taught enough times that even the woman, even anybody walking to the king uninvited warrants death. There's no case in all of human history where a king did not kill somebody uninvited. Now, it doesn't mean no king did that, but nothing in records no record that says this king let this person live other than Esther. We're not used to absolute monarchies where the king has absolute power and does whatever he wants and nobody can stop him. And if you do, you die. That's what she's used to. Now, at the same time, you're thinking, yeah, but David's not really a king like all the other nations. The Bible's kind of been going out of its way to say that, right? But does she know David like that? She's not like, she doesn't have the divine word of God illuminating David's deeper inner character. On the outside, David cuts heads off of people, and he collects wives, and he's a little power hungry. That's what she sees. There's no like autobiography, Peter Jennings, Diane Sawyer going behind the scenes and then getting the nitty-gritty, Oprah making him cry on national television as he bears his soul to everybody. There's no divine narrative. There's no nothing of that for her. All she knows is kings are like this, and when I see him at his distance, I see a warrior, I see a guy who collects wives, and tonight he's not acting like a godly king. And she is now put in the most difficult position you could possibly be. I either allow myself to be raped or I say no and I die. And I know people condemn her for making that choice, but until you're in her shoes, then shut up. (laughs) I mean, I can't imagine making that choice. That's the point. Because the action moves so quickly and he does all the verbing and all the sending. That's the idea that's being communicated here. And then to make things even worse, she's going to have to marry this guy afterwards. There's no love story here. 
So she sends word. That's the first sending back to him. You want to abuse power? Abuse of power comes with consequences. And now they're being sent back to you. Now he has to cover this up. Verse 6, So David sent a message to Joab and said, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked about how Joab and the army were doing and how the campaign was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your home and relax. When Uriah left the palace, the king sent a gift to him. But Uriah stayed at the door of the palace with all of the servants of his lord. And he did not go down to his house. So David's first plan is, get Uriah home. Husband and wife haven't seen each other for a long time. There's a good chance that he's probably going to die. He may not come back alive because that's how war works. They're going to be excited to see each other. They'll fall into each other's arms. And then it will be so obvious that this is Uriah's kid. So he invites Uriah back. Now already it's kind of awkward because Uriah is one of David's closest bodyguards, but he's not a general in the army. Which, why in the world did David bring him back to find out what's going on in the battle? So you already arrive probably thinking, just in a customs kind of way, why am I the guy reporting the news of what's going on in the battle? And why do you have to bring a key figure in the war back to get the news when messengers go back all the time? Now, I don't know exactly what he's thinking, but knowing the customs of that time period, that might be a thought that he's having. So David says, relax, go back to your home, enjoy your family. The problem is he doesn't do that. So verse 10, they informed David, Uriah has not gone down to his house. So David said to Uriah, haven't you just arrived from a journey? Why haven't you gone down to your house? He replied to, Uriah replied to David, the ark of Israel and Judah reside in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the lord's soldiers are campa- camping in the open field. Should I go to my house to eat and drink and have marital relations with my wife? As surely as you are alive, I will not do this thing. Now, what Uriah is saying is not fair that I get to be with my family and everybody else doesn't. Now, have you noticed something? He's the only person here that keeps being called Uriah the Hittite. He's not an Israelite. He's a Hittite. He was one of those people who were supposed to be wiped out in the campaigns. But obviously he wasn't because he has demonstrated faith. He's a part of the covenant of God now. And the narrator's intentionally calling Uriah the Hittite, Uriah the Hittite, Uriah the Hittite, because Uriah the foreigner is showing more self-control with the thing that he has the right to be with and more obedience to the law than David the chosen Israelite king of God's people is showing with the thing that he doesn't have the right to be with. And you're going to start seeing a new theme that's going to start popping up in these books of the Bible, and that's the foreigners are going to start responding to God in a much better way than the Israelites do. And Uriah the Hittite is showing more self-control than David, who has the Davidic covenant, the chosen king who's supposed to be the most ultimate image of God, is showing. And yet the guy who is marked for destruction is more godly than David. And the narrator wants you to know that because we're beginning this theme of the foreigners are going to show more faith than the people of Israel themselves. And that's why he keeps mentioning that. And so Uriah is not viable. Plus, the law required that men abstain from sex during battle. So he's showing obedience to the law there. His wife is showing obedience to the law. And he's showing self-control. 
So plan A doesn't work. So if somebody shows incredible self-control, the best thing you can do to destroy their self-control is get them drunk. So then David summoned him, and he ate and he drank with him, and he got him drunk. Now, why is Uriah getting drunk? Well, one, it could be that he's not perfect. But it also could be you don't say no to the king. Not only is refusing anything from anybody in their house of hospitality considered offensive, it'd be incredibly offensive to refuse the king. And so if he keeps saying, here, have another one, have another one, have another one, you have a choice between death or drunk. But in the evening he went out to sleep in his bed and servants his Lord, and he did not go down to his own house. Even drunk, he shows more self-control than David did sober. And the narrator is showing you this just to jab it in David's side even more. In verse 14, In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. And the letter he wrote, Station Uriah in the thick of the battle and withdraw from him so you will be cut down and killed. This is insult to injury. Because now David has ordered the assassination of Uriah, but who's in charge of delivering that order? Uriah. Uriah doesn't even know he's carrying his own death sentence. This is like somebody saying, here, take this gun to this person over here. And you take the gun over and they use it to shoot you. This is horrible what David is doing. Total disregard for any kind of value, emotions, life, dignity, anything like that. Now what he tells Joab is literally impossible to do. How in the world do you take a high-ranking official in the army put him in the thickest part of the battle and tell everybody in the war to withdraw, but don't tell Uriah. There are so many people that are going to be loyal to Uriah, and they're going to tell him. Uriah, when everybody runs away, is probably going to follow them. There's no way you can physically pull off a withdrawal of an entire army and leave one man all by himself, especially a high-ranking official who's going to be very battle-savvy. This isn't like some frightened newbie on the battle lines that's never had experience before. Joab reads this and probably thinks, there's no way I can pull that one off. And the only way he could really pull it off is if he gave all the generals the command and not certain other generals so that so many people don't withdraw that it becomes obvious. But then all those people die. So Joab has to create an artificial scenario to get Uriah killed. Remember, Job is a violent man, and he's incredibly loyal to David. He's not asking questions, but still, there should be some thoughts of why Uriah, a high-ranking bodyguard in David's army, is being set to the, the gallows, so to speak. But Job is complicit in this. So, he sends him out. But what he's going to do is he's literally going to send his men up against the city wall. Now, that's dumb. You do not send your soldiers up against the city wall because at the top of the city wall, you have the advantage. In the ancient world, you throw everything down that you have. When you're desperate to stay alive, they would shoot down flaming arrows. They would drop rocks. I mean, we've already read two stories of women dropping rocks off of walls and breaking people's heads open. They would boil their feces and dump them out on people. I mean, you got all these feces because you're trapped in your city. You might as well put them to use in war. So you, you, you don't go up against city walls. That's dumb. But this is the only way Job can do it. So not only is he going to send them up against the city wall, but you can't send Uriah all by himself, which means other people are going to die. 
This isn't just the murder of one man. This is a murder of a whole group of people to cover this all up. This sin is not an affair. This sin is rape. It's sexual sin. It's murder. It's mass murder. It's, it's all kinds of things. Pride and arrogance and it's complicity. It's conspiracy. This is a lot more than just an affair. This is everything going downhill drastically. Uriah dies, along with all these men. Verse 18, Then Job sent a full battle report to David. Now notice that this is the second time that somebody else does the action. But even then, it's just a very brief action thing. And he instructed the messenger as follows. When you finish giving the battle report to the king, if the king becomes angry and asks you, Why did you go close to the city fight? Didn't you realize that they would shoot from the wall who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerub, Beshath? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone down on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go so close to the wall? So Job is anticipating this. Like, we've all learned from multiple stories in the past that you don't go up against walls. Like, remember Abimelech? He died by a millstone. Why did you do this? Now, know something. Job says, when you report that we went up against the wall and everybody died, then when the king gets angry, just say to him, your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. So you've just been told that you're going to present a message to the king that's probably going to tick him off. And the key to quelching, um, stifling his anger is, Uriah the Hittite is dead. Now, you've heard the phrase, don't shoot the messenger. It's because people will really do that. A lot of times these dictators are just overgrown, spoiled little brats. And they're very selfish. They're very narcissistic. And you guys have seen enough movies, Pablo Escobar and dictators. And when they get angry, they lash out. And when they lash out, the person that tips, typically the closest person is the messenger. I mean, even when Saul, we saw when he got angry, he grabbed spears and just throw them. And David was always there, close by. The messenger knows that this is a potential. He's going to tell something to the king that's going to make him mad. And he's the closest person to die. The key phrase here is Uriah the Hittite is dead. Notice that Job said, tell him the news. If he gets angry, then tell him Uriah is dead. The messenger doesn't do that. The messenger goes right in and says, we sent up many people up against the wall, lots of people die, Uriah the Hittite is dead. <laughs> he doesn't even wait for the reaction. It's just one quick thing. This guy, this is the only intelligent guy in the entire story right now. Okay? He's like, I'm not dying today. If that's the magic phrase, I'm getting out as fast as I can. And he tells David this. And then David responds this way. Verse 25. Tell Joab, don't let this thing upset you. There's no way to anticipate whom the sword will cut down. Press the battle against the city and conquer it. Encourage him with these words. In the Hebrew it says that the sword comes to one man's house and not another, and we don't know why. Now the irony of that is, David knows exactly why the sword came to Uriah's house, because he sent it. But that phrase communicates an absolute apathy and callousness to what has just happened. There's no guilt. I mean, many of us have done lots of bad things, and we've even done it intentionally. Like, we've made a choice to sin, and we've done it. 
But even in that, we feel like guilt. And we may not be ready to confess it to everybody, but we do feel a guilt and it eats us up. And when somebody calls us out, it's like, oh my gosh. There's other times that we've done something and we haven't really felt any shame. And we even justify it when people call us out. And we've seen David repent multiple times. When Abigail got in his face and other people got in his face, he immediately poured out. But here, he's still in that callous stage where it really hasn't sunk in. And why? Because nobody is a human to him right now. And I don't mean nobody, nobody, nobody. But right now, he's in this state of everybody is an object. Bathsheba is an object. Uriah is an object. Job is an object. This messenger is an object. And Uriah is another name on another list of many people who have died in battle. And woo, I don't have to worry about consequences anymore. And that's the danger. Now, remember, he's in panic mode. And when you sin and you're trying to cover things up, you don't think straight. You just go in panic mode and things come out. The nonchalantness of this communicates the idea that everything is now good in the kingdom of David. And not only that, he waits for Bathsheba to mourn for a week, which is the morning time. He takes her, he sleeps with her, and now everybody's just going to think, this is his kid. This is his kid. And I know the math doesn't work completely, but remember they don't have ultrasounds, and it's not like People Magazine is reporting what stage of birth they're in as a celebrity and all that kind of stuff. So most people are going to probably just think it's just a premature baby maybe, or maybe it happened or whatever. The only people who are probably really going to know are that messenger that night and a few other people in the palace. But nobody really cares what they think in the higher-up political realm. But here's the thing. The paragraph ends with, but what David had done displeased Yahweh. That's all that matters. That's all that matters. 